Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again. Um, if you weren't here last week, you probably didn't notice, but if you were, I wasn't here last week. I was in Houston speaking to students at a camp, and um, I'm kind of low energy unless I preach, but there's something about being around those students that really gave me life. You know, they're, all, they're at a stage in their life where they're thinking about calling and destiny and just to be out there, try to inspire them with the love of Christ. It was such a privilege. And I'm so grateful for, for you and those who have served, and especially Pastor David Pinckney from New Hampshire who came and preached as well. I hope it was such a blessing for you. Um, so you are probably filled with all kinds of desires this morning. And I'm aware of that. If we were to just take stock of the desires represented here, it would probably be overwhelming. For example, there are desires here for relationships. So regarding all kinds of relationships, you might have uh, desires for people in your life to experience physical healing or spiritual healing, emotional or mental health, uh, healing in terms of mental health. Maybe there's desires as it relates to reconciliation, you for, for relationships to be reconciled again, or for peace for certain people in your life, for them to have faith. Or you desire relationships in, in, in the sense of like wanting friends, you want new friends, or, or you want to meet somebody, you want to start dating, or desires for your marriage. Then there are desires related to finances. Forgot to provide, you're going through something right now and you just really hope that he'll provide for you. You want some kind of stability. You want to get out of debt. You want financial freedom. You desire financial freedom. Or maybe if you're not in debt, wisdom to, to steward whatever he's given you right now. There are desires for career and ambition, new opportunities, for God to open new doors, for you to have promotions in your life, for people to recognize you at work and then therefore give you new opportunities and maybe a new position, for perseverance, focus, energy, creativity, balance as it relates to your work and career. Then you have spiritual desires to know and love God more, to love and serve this church, to experience greater intimacy with God, maybe for revival in your faith, for your faith to be renewed, for God to breathe on that again, to grow in his word, to use the gifts that he's given you to build up this community for the edification of the church. And then you've got warring and waning desires. You know the good that you want to do, but you can't do it. Because you have desires at war within you. Or you know what you ought to do, but you struggle to do it because you're not motivated. They're desires that are waning. This is why I often tell our staff and volunteers when, they, when we serve on a Sunday morning together that the ministry that happens among people is so much bigger than us. Like if you just think about the complexity of the desires represented just in this room, represented just in your life. Spiritual desires, career desires, desires for relationships, financial desires, warring desires. It's more than any one person can bear. And that's why when we pray together, we're not just going through a ritual like, okay, service is about to start. Let's just ask God to bless it. No, it's acknowledging that, God, this is beyond us. Like what needs to happen here among people here is not anything that we could handle. Lord, we need you, and that's why we're looking to you. And even if you don't look at everyone else's desires, but you only look at yours, if you were to actually just pause for a minute and think about all the different things that you desire right now, it would probably overwhelm you. But this morning, we're going to take our eyes off of ourselves and our desires, and we're going to actually think about what Jesus desires. As we approach Easter in the next two weeks, we're going to consider the desires of Jesus in the final days of his life. What did Jesus want? Now, there are a lot of things that can be said there, but we're going to focus on two. And here's what I would love for us, um, love for our time today. 
I would love for us to find hope in his desires. Unlike our desires, which can be strong, can be weak, are warring and waning, or might be subject to change, right? You might not desire the same thing you do today, tomorrow. I want us to experience the strength and decisiveness of Jesus' desires. And therefore, walk out of here finding hope because of what he desires and because of the strength of his desire. As I said, there are many things that we could probably cite, but as he faced the cross, we're going to focus on two today. His desire, he desires fellowship with us, and he desires faith in us. Let's look at the first. This first desire, that he desires fellowship with us. So let me set the setting for the passage that Sharon had read for us. This again is the final hours of his life. So like the last chapter of, of his actual physical ministry here on earth um, uh, before his uh, resurrection, crucifixion and resurrection. And it's also the time of the year where Israel would remember the time, that historical event when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. This is the Passover, right? So it's a time that every year they would gather together in their homes and share a Passover meal. God told Moses to tell Israel in that time, to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of that lamb, and put it on their doorpost. And whenever the angel would see the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, he would pass over, he would pass over them and not judge them, right? And so there was not one person in all of Israel that died as a result of that. Not one person was lost, and God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. So Jesus and his disciples are gathered in a room to remember this event together 1,400 years before. But then Jesus says something striking. Let's pick up from verse 13 again. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will, not eat, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So we're not going to really appreciate the word, weight of Jesus' words here unless we understand that all of, their <coughs> excuse me, all of their history was pointing to this moment, these final hours of Jesus' life. For example, here's an Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman. He gave this example of in order to truly understand how to read the New te Old Testament, we have to compare it to our experience of watching a movie that has a surprise twist at the end of it. So if you could think of it like a movie that you've watched before and you had no idea, this is my favorite kind of movie to watch, right? It's like suspenseful and at the end, it's so smart, it's so well done and well written that at the end of it, I'm just like, I did not see that coming. That's the kind of movie that I really enjoy. And he says, you have to really watch, you have to read the Old Testament kind of like that. You got to read it with the end in mind. He gives an example of The Sixth Sense. It's a movie, I think, in the late 1900s, 1990s. <laughs> Late 1990s, early 2000s, Bruce Willis is like, well, I forgot the name of the, of, of the child, but the child sees ghosts, and at the end you find out that this person, Bruce Willis, who was helping him in the midst of all this, was a ghost himself. And what happens is you re-watch the movie, and you see whether or not he, if anyone else sees Bruce Willis, and you notice, like, yeah, he actually was a ghost in the movie, but you really didn't notice. 
So what that means is, in light of the end, if you ever go back and rewatch the movie, you watch it now with the end in mind. You're looking for new things, new clues, and that's what Tremper Longman essentially says, that in light of knowing that all of this is culminating in Christ, you go back and you read the Old Testament, and now you're looking for signs of the things that point to Jesus and how Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of all that you see in the Old Testament. So for example... You see signs that are God would rescue and deliver people from themselves from sin and ultimately death in the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And then they decided to hide from God and they took their different fig leaves and they tried to cover their own nakedness and their, their shame and their guilt. And, and what does God do? God ends up drawing them out. He draws them out with, uh, as he looks for them. And then he sacrifices an animal in order to cover them with loincloths, which means that he covers their nakedness or our nakedness, our guilt and, and shame at, with, because of a sacrifice that he would make. You see this probably most explicitly in the story of Abraham, where Abraham is finally given a son at the ripe year of 100 years old. Right? He's finally given a son, and he's been waiting for this. I mean, God had promised him 25 years before that that he would have a son, finally has a son, and then God tells him to go and sacrifice a son. And you might pause there for a minute and say, why would God do that? Well, in that time, a couple things to know, child sacrifice was very common. Now, this was also going to be a moment where Abraham would have to determine and discover that he, God is not like the other gods of this world that demand that kind of sacrifice. He's a God that actually would provide his own son for a sacrifice. And you see that in the fact that God... God would tell Abraham to stop and say that he would provide instead. And what does that point to? It points to how Jesus, over a thousand years later, would be the sacrifice that the Father would give. Or as I told you with Moses, right, you see this, that God was going to pass over Israel. He's, he has called Moses, and he's told Moses that he's going to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt, but they also are subject to judgment. The only difference between them and the Egyptians is the fact that they have, there is a sacrifice, a, a sacrificial lamb's blood that is on the doorpost, and because of the blood of the lamb, they were passed over. They were not judged. They did not die. That's the only thing that separated them. And what does that point to? Well, we know. Here in this passage, when Jesus is celebrating a Passover meal that's about 1,400 years old, he knows in this moment it's all about him. It was always going to foreshadow what was about him. And so imagine what it was like for Jesus sitting there having this meal, knowing that this is the moment. Hundreds, centuries of people gone before. It was foreshadowing this. No one else would fully understand what was about to take place. He knew that as the bread was broken, it was going to be his body. That as the cup was poured out, that was going to be his blood. That he was going to be marred beyond, beyond human recognition. And you know what he says with all of that weighing upon his shoulders in that moment. I've eagerly desired to have this meal with you. I just want you to think about that. I've been waiting for this moment. Knowing that what was on the table represented him and what he would give. What is the strength of that desire? It's not that he was eager to suffer. No, not at all. Jesus doesn't eagerly desire suffering, which we're going to see next week. What he desires is fellowship with us. Despite the suffering that was symbolized on the table, he wanted us. It was the meal and the fulfillment that he was finally going to do it. All of it culminating in this moment that it was going to be fulfilled. And in that moment, he desired fellowship with us. Do you experience the strength of that desire? Because I think there are two things that would make us question the strength of Jesus' desire to be in fellowship with us. And the first is the cost. What would Jesus really endure to be with us? 
Like, what's he willing to subject himself to? Like, what would he be willing to walk through and endure in order to draw you into a relationship with himself? One that is intimate, where you are known and loved and experience unhindered access to his presence. What price would he pay? Well, he was about to bear the wrath of God for the sins of this world, though he was innocent. Your sins and mine, past, present, and future, the punishment for sins that he has never committed. He was going to be mocked and beaten and crucified, stripped and hang naked on a cross. And knowing the, knowing the cost, what does he do? He says, yeah, I eagerly desire to have this with you. It's you and me. It's fellowship with us. So here's what my question then. How does that speak to your view today? That Jesus doesn't really love you but just tolerates you. Like how eager do you think Jesus is to be with you? Like what would, he, what would hinder him? What would weaken this desire? Is there anything you could think of doing or any cost or price that would be paid that you think would weaken or lessen the intensity of this desire to be in fellowship with you? How does that speak to your perspective that Jesus grumbles while he puts up with you? Or how does it answer your fears today that there are limits, restraints to his desire for you? There isn't even a hint of resentment, Right? This isn't like Jesus is sitting there and he sees Peter eating bread and he's like, oh yeah, you enjoying that bread, huh? Huh? That's my body. Yeah, you better enjoy it, right? You know what it symbolizes, right? You're welcome, Peter. None of that. Like there's no sacrifice in sighing. Like when I sacrifice, well, a sacrifice, right? Like when I, when I do anything remotely sacrificial for my wife and kids, like everybody's got to know about it. It's like a pressure valve being released. Like I'm constantly sighing like, oh, I guess I'll, I'll do the laundry today. Like I'm like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh walking around like, oh, bother. Like look at me. There's not, none of that here. It's all bearing on the weight of, it's on his shoulders. He says, I've been waiting for this moment. Knowing the cost. He's eager to be with us despite the cost. Second thing that would make us question the strength of his desire is our weakness, right? Oh, you, you just don't know how weak I am. Like, Jesus, you might have all this desire, but you, you must see the waning desire within me, and therefore, that must somehow weaken your desire to be with me. That's what we would think, right? Would our weaknesses weaken Jesus' desi his desire for us? Is Jesus' desire only for the strong only for those who get it right, who do everything right, and who always match his intensity of desire? No. How do I know that? Because he says this knowing that every person in that room would abandon him in his time of need. Knowing that every one of them were going to abandon him and some deny ever knowing him. Those closest to him for the past three years who have seen miracles. Who've, who've walked with him and, 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 he's, and he's, they've learned from him for the past three years. They've done life together in this way. They would desert him, and nevertheless, knowing that, their weakness, is this desire hindered? No, he says, I've, I've been waiting for this moment. Knowing that, seeing their warring and weak desire, knowing their faithlessness and doubt, and what it would cost to save them, he says, I've been waiting for this moment. So is this what you think of when you think of Jesus' desire for you? Do you feel the strength and intensity of this desire for fellowship with you that's unflinching in the face of suffering? In the face of your weakness, the face of your failure and faithlessness. I'm going to pause here as I ask this question. How does the strength of his desire then give you hope today? Think about that. The second thing is, not only does he desire fellowship with us, he, he desires faith in us. 
Let's go ahead and read now verse 31 through 34. It's the same chapter. And this happens now after the Passover meal. Jesus now telling Simon, Simon Peter there. Simon, Simon, <coughs> Satan has asked to sift, you, sift all of you as wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. A couple things to observe here. First, notice that Satan needs permission to tempt Peter. And this is really consistent with what you see in God's interaction with Satan. Anything that Satan does, uh, whether it's a, a wanting to afflict us in any way or tempt us, he's got to get permission from God. And, it, it, you know, it might not help in terms of like, well, I'm still going to experience temptation or I'm still going to experience suffering. It should help in that anything that happens in your life has to go through God first. A God who loves you and knows you and calls you his own. So let that first encourage you. But the second thing here is that Jesus prays for Peter. But notice what he prays. He doesn't pray that Peter would not fail. Like that would be, to me, that would be the most obvious thing to pray, right? Like Satan has asked to sift you like weak, which is like really pick you apart, pick you apart to pieces. But I've prayed that you wouldn't deny me. That's not what he says. He says, I've prayed that your faith wouldn't fail. Now, in some, to some extent, you could say that Peter's denial is a failure of faith, right? And I think that's true to some degree, right? Because anytime we sin, we fail to believe something about God, that God is enough in that moment, that God could, could provide in that moment, or God stands with, in that mo with us in that moment, that he satisfies us. He's the only person to be feared in that moment, or he's, his approval matters most, or he, his promises are true, or he will sustain us. Like, whenever we sin, there is in some way uh, or shape or form that our faith is failing, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus' prayer reveals that his ultimate desire for us is that our faith, that altogether would not, would not fail, that even when we fail, he desires that our faith would not fail, that our failures wouldn't crush our faith. But let's explore this a little bit some more, okay? So Peter, where is his faith in this moment when Jesus says, you're going to deny me? It's in himself. He says, I'll never do it. In other, in other gospel accounts, it says, even if everyone else does, I won't. Or here it says, I'm willing to go, and, I'm willing to, go to prison and die with you, which is what he thought it was going to happen. I'm willing to do that. And he says it in front of everybody. But notice, Jesus is completely undeterred by this. Like, he just kind of lets it go by him, right? He, he lets Peter's promise, like his empty promise, just go right by him. He's like, no, no, you're going to deny me. Not just that. He also, in some ways, lets Peter's failure go by him, too. He's undeterred by his failure as well. He almost takes this, like, this posture of, like, this too will pass. So when you, when you turn, encourage your brothers. Like, go and encourage others when you turn. So he's undeterred by two things. One is the empty promises about the future. I'll never do it again. I promise I'll be faithful. Faith in himself. And he's also undeterred by the fact that Peter actually stumbled and fell. Yeah, when you turn back. Go and encourage others. And even this turning, though, requires faith. And this is the focus of his prayer. Jesus prays for him to have faith, even after he fails. And this leads to the question, faith in what, then? Like, what kind of faith do you need after the worst failure of your life? What kind of faith do you need after you break your promise to God and you abandon the God who loves you and that you love, too? What kind of faith would Peter need in this moment that Jesus prays for Think about that. 
He's absolutely wrecked. He, he's, he's faithless in the moment of st- needing to stand with Jesus when he's asked by people, do you know him? And he denies him three times, just like Jesus has said. And that, that, that probably stung a little bit more, that Jesus told him it was going to happen, and he did it anyway. What kind of faith would Jesus want him to have in that moment? Faith in Jesus. Faith in his loving embrace. Faith in his welcome. Faith in his compassion. Faith in his forgiveness and mercy. How else will you turn? Faith in his grace. Faith in his love that overcomes our worst failure. Faith in Jesus' ability to restore a man like Peter after the worst failure of his life. Jesus is, knows that Satan wants to pick him apart to pieces, but he is praying that in that moment, that failure would crush his faith in Jesus' ability to embrace him, welcome him, change him, redeem him, and restore him. That Peter would take his eyes off of his worst in that moment, could look to Jesus and his strength in his moment, and therefore turn. That there are reasons to turn, there's hope. In other words... Jesus desires that our, the source of our confidence, our faith in him, be strong even when we fail. That our failure wouldn't stifle our faith. That our failure wouldn't crush our faith in his ability to still rescue us, change us, sanctify us, and restore us. For some of you, you, it's, you your, your most recent failure is probably very apparent to you. And I just wonder if it's worth asking right now, and I'm going to ask it anyway, of what your faith is like in that moment. What happens to your faith after you fail? What happens to your confidence in Jesus to welcome you, embrace you, change you, sanctify you, and restore you after you fail? Do your failures stifle your faith? Does it crush your ability to believe those things? And what if you could hear Jesus pray that your faith wouldn't fail? Here's what this means. After you fail, it means there's either going to be faith in him or faith in yourself. So when there's faith in him, that he's compassionate and gracious still, that he's merciful, when you know the strength of that desire, you can turn to him right away. But when it's faith in yourself, you wait till you feel confident enough to now to approach God again, right? It's about, it's about your own self-determination. And your success and failure really dictates it, right? When, you're, when it's faith in yourself, you're high when you're successful, when you've been obedient for a while. And you're really low when you fail. But when it's faith in him, you know that his posture has not changed. He is not undeterred by our actions. The intensity of his desire is to still restore us and develop faith in us. Faith in him versus faith in self. Here's turning to him versus turning to ourselves in more self-determination. What does it mean when Jesus says, and when you turn again? Turn to what? Turn to him. Not look within yourself and see if you can come up with more empty promises about what you'll do in the future. No, when you turn again implies when you turn to me. When you look to me again and you start following me again and hoping in me again. There's strength in others to have faith versus shutting down which is what Peter was probably tempted to do, right, after you fail. This means that when you have faith in Jesus and you turn to him again, it strengthens your faith, and now you look to other people who also might be struggling with their faith, and you encourage them as well. In some ways, I guess what I'm trying to say is that this kind of faith is defiant, and 
If you are in, in an ongoing battle with some kind of habitual sin in your life, you're going to have to learn how to practice this kind of defiant faith, faith that flies in the face of your feelings and your failures. So let me tell you how it played out in my life. When I was addicted to pornography and before God had delivered me from that, every time I fell into sexual sin, I struggled to believe that he welcomed me, embraced me, he would change me, and he would restore me. I didn't think he would do that. So whenever I'd fall to temptation, I would go a couple of months without praying because it was just too awkward, too weird. I wasn't sure how he felt about me, right? And sometimes I thought it was too easy, like, oh, it's too easy for me to just get up and pray again as if, like, no, I've got to punish myself. Like, I've got to go and do my penance. I've got to be separated from you. There's got to be a cost. And that's probably because I didn't believe that, the co- that Jesus paid that cost for me. But as I understood the heart of God, the heart of God in the gospel, that all of my sins have already been punished, past, present, and future, that it's already been taken care of, then that gap between when I fell and when I would go back to God began to close. I don't need to wait anymore. I could turn to him. He'd say, when you turn, I could turn to him because I knew that he would welcome me, embrace me, he redeemed me, he promised to change me, he will do it. He will restore me. How else will we turn to him? Isn't that what he's praying for? That our faith wouldn't fail? Our faith in him, that his posture is unchanged, that he's still welcoming us with open arms, that he can redeem us, he can change us? I stopped avoiding him as a way of sparing us both the disappointment that it would happen again. I didn't avoid him because I thought he was angry with me. I had faith that defied my feelings and my failure. I had faith in Jesus. My eyes weren't even on myself anymore. And I noticed as I began to practice that again in community, not on an island somewhere, but confessing my sin and talking to other people about that, I noticed not only that gap closing, but I started to experience freedom for the first time in my life. I would go to him and I would say, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you, but Lord, I believe defiantly that you welcome me, you embrace me, you have redeemed me. It's already accounted for. I'm sorry, but I know that you've already, uh, the, the punishment has already been meted out, not on me, but on Jesus, and that you promised to change me. Now, the gap looks different for all of us based on where we are in our journey. So see if you can notice it with this next story. Just last weekend, after one of the sessions in Houston, um, a young man approached me. And he was very honest with me. This is right after I got done preaching. And I told him I'd stick around. I want to talk to them. Just have a con- whatever you want to talk about. I told him I'm an open book. We could talk. And he came up to me and he said, Jason, I don't care about God. I just want to be successful in my career. And I thought he wanted me to like pray for him so that he'd be successful in his career. And, but he just kept going. He was like, I, j- I just have to be. And I'll be honest. He says, it matters to me more than, it matters, than God matters to me right now. And he had experienced a lot of disappointment in his life, and now he was at a point where he didn't expect anything from God. It was probably too painful to have any kind of expectation. And he even admitted that he doesn't desire God. And in our conversation, I wanted him to see that even here, despite what he felt and what he would admit, that there was hope still there, that it wasn't all gone. I mean, do you see it? There was faith, because every step to talk to this pastor, right, was a step of faith. That maybe, just maybe, God would do something different. In his words, he was like, when I told him that, he was like, okay, but it's more like, I don't have a desire, but I have a desire to have a desire to have a desire to desire God. I'm like, that's it, we'll take it, whatever it is. Whatever morsel is there, that's faith that hasn't failed yet, right? 
Like, you got to have an eye for that. you got to see, like, the enemy would want you to believe that your faith is so completely gone that there's not even a morsel left, that your faith is gone and God has totally withdrawn himself from you. But when you notice and have an eye for those things, the work of the Spirit, you realize that Jesus is interceding for us and there's still something alive within you. Every step revealed that faith hadn't failed. And maybe it shows not just the strength of your desire, maybe it shows the strength and intensity of Jesus' desire and prayers for you. Here's Jesus interceding for Peter. He goes before the Father and contends for Peter's faith. New Hope Church, this alone has to be the source of our confidence. I don't care if you fasted and prayed for 40 days and you're prayed up and you haven't failed in the you know in years or whatever else it is and you don't lie, cuss and steal or whatever you think are like the sin, you know sins you're turning over. I don't care, I don't care about any of that. This alone, his intercession for us is a source of our confidence. Jesus is interceding for us. I don't care how you failed. I don't care what you've done. The worst of it, how you've abandoned God, how you've denied him. This alone is a source of our confidence. Just like Peter, we stand on the strength of Jesus' desire and his intercession for us. And lest you think that this only applies to Peter, this is what the Apostle Paul says about what Jesus does for us today. Romans 8, 31 through 34. Let's read it. It's on the back of your bulletin. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, get this, is at the right hand of God. And is also interceding for us. Jesus' very life, his resurrected body, exalted to the right hand of God the Father, intercedes for us that our faith would not fail. Won't he answer that prayer? Like, he may not answer our desires. Like, yeah, he listens to our desires. He welcomes it and he will respond to it. But what will he say to Jesus' prayer intercession for us? Will he ever say no to that? Jesus is interceding for you and for me. Yes, we walked in here with all kinds of desires this morning. Relationship, financial, career, spiritual, warring, and waning desires. Now we pause to consider the strength of his desire and how decisive his desire is. Like, I can desire for you, something for you, and I'm not really sure if, if it's going to come to be, right? I'm not, that's not really a decisive desire. But I hope that you and I could see that this is no weak desire on behalf of Jesus. This is a decisive desire. Desires expressed not just in his words, but in the giving of his body and his blood. That's what it will accomplish. Desires resolved to experience humiliation, suffering, and death on our behalf to welcome, embrace, rescue, change, and restore us. Desires that he will see fulfilled. To have fellowship with us and to awaken faith in us. It may take ever, every fiber in your being today to practice defiant faith not in yourself, but in Jesus today. So how do his desires give you hope?